Hopefully now you've got your Bible, you're at Revelation chapter 2. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for this community, and we thank you for just what it means to belong to your body. Um, Thank you for just the spirit in this room that reflects your grace and your love. And I pray that you would be continually reforming us and transforming us and drawing us deeper into that, Lord. I pray that as the unbelieving world looks at our church, that the things that they would see here would be the love and grace that you offer. And I pray too that they would see our passion, our obsession with you that leads us to live lives of obedience. And so God, would you continue to be at work at Maricopa Springs? We give you thanks for everything that you've done here and everything that you are doing and everything that we know you will continue to do. And so we bless your name this morning and ask that you would speak to us through this time. Amen. Uh, One of the reasons why I want you to have a Bible is because we're going to be kind of flipping around, so bear with me in that. Um, But before we do that, I I just want to know, maybe you have noticed recently all of these new signs that have gone up on the 347 as you've been driving back and forth between town. Here and, and in other places around Phoenix, I've noticed that there are more and more signs warning drivers about driving the wrong way on the road. Have you seen this? Um, I noticed it probably within the last couple of months, maybe it was right after we came back from Chicago even, that between here and Phoenix, particularly on the 347, there's got to be probably a dozen of these signs that have gone up. Bright red signs that you can't miss uh, if you're driving the wrong way on the road. And if you look across the lanes of traffic while you're driving, hopefully you'll notice them going forward. They're facing the wrong way. They tell a driver that if they have entered the road going this direction, that they need to turn around, stop. They're, they're, they're going the wrong way. And the sad truth is actually these signs are necessary, believe it or not, right? When I saw them at first, I was like, duh, you're going the wrong way, right? But they're necessary. As recently as December 12th, there was, or, or sometime in December, I'm sorry, there was a 12-car pileup, an accident on 347. Fortunately, there were no fatalities. But what happened was a truck ended up going the wrong way on the 347, and it caused this massive accident. So we have these bright red signs, and they say one, over, one on top of the other, do not enter wrong way. You really can't miss it. It lets people know that going the wrong direction on the 347 has potentially fatal consequences. And as we continue our study through Revelation, we've encountered, I think, several of these kinds of street signs as we've been looking at these letters to the seven churches in Revelation. Warning signs that Jesus has given to his church that if they continue to drive this direction, if they continue to go this way, then there may be potentially fatal consequences for that decision. And today as we look at the church in Thyatira, we're going to find another one of those warning signs, I think. A do not enter wrong way. And what's interesting is this isn't even the last one of these signs in these letters, in this section of Revelation. And I think it's important to keep that in mind because I've sort of been hitting on this again and again and again, that the purity and the faithfulness of the church It's not something that's of secondary importance to God. This is actually something that's of primary importance, which is why again and again in the New Testament we find Scripture talking about this idea. So look with me, verses 18 through 19. Let me read this. 
This is John who's writing, but he's actually quoting Jesus who's speaking. And so it says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Once again, we see Jesus, he begins his conversation with his church in Thyatira with positive words of encouragement. That's how he has begun every one of these letters. And personally, as I've looked at this, I think that Thyatira is one of the healthiest churches that we encounter out of the seven here. He he commends them for their works, their love, and their faith, their service, their patient endurance. He uses words to describe this congregation that I think are very healthy words. They have most of the essential elements of what it means to be a Christian. He even points out to them that their works that they're doing now are greater than the works that they've done before, showing that there's growth, there's momentum, there's an upward trajectory. And I think taken as a whole, this church is generally doing quite well, certainly better than some of the other churches that we've looked at if you've been here the last couple of weeks. It's as if they have been driving in the right direction. But then we get the warning, the big red sign that shows them that they're at a crucial intersection at this point. And if they don't make a course correction, then there may be some fatal consequences ahead. Specifically, Jesus points out, There's a sect of people within the church who've compromised. They have tolerated these pagan practices. In particular, they've taken up engaging in idol worship and all of the ugly sexual sin and corruption that comes along with that. So let me read the next couple verses, 20 through 23. He says, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to you, each of you, according to your works." Now, there's quite a bit in here, but I want to zero in on one particular topic. When we see this reference to Jezebel, hopefully our minds go immediately back to the Old Testament, particularly First and Second Kings, where we encounter Queen Jezebel. She was guilty of leading the people of Israel astray into idolatry, idol worship, and with that idol worship came all kinds of evil and immorality as the people of Israel forsook their covenant with God and went chasing after false gods. And in a similar fashion, whoever this person Jezebel is in Thyatira, she's causing some of the church there to fall into the most grievous sin that there is. Idolatry, the worship of false gods. And this is really where I want us to focus this morning. Jesus is warning his church not to fall back into the default state of mankind. And what is the default state of man? What is that? What does it look like? Well, it's the worship of false gods. It's idol worship. It is abandoning the one true God who made man in his image to chase after false gods made in the image of man. 
And this is really important, I think, that you understand this mega theme of Scripture. The Bible tells us that mankind has a very serious problem. The condition of the world is not sort of bad, but generally getting better. The world is actually full of idolatry, and we are creatures made to worship, so that fits our nature. But we were made to worship God. And yet, because of sin, the default mode of the human heart is idol worship, idolatry. I would say sometimes it even creeps its way into the church, right? That's what we see in Thyatira. But I want to show you this from Scripture. I don't want you to just take my word for it. I want to show you how God's Word lays out this condition for us. And we're actually going to start in Romans chapter 1 and work our way backwards. This is why I want you to have a Bible. Flip with me to Romans 1. And you know what? We're a church where there is no shame in using the index, okay? If you don't know where Romans is, flip to the front of your Bible and there's an index and it'll tell you what page to go to. Romans chapter 1. And I love the sound of the flipping pages. Once, or you could go the cheater way too and you could use your app on your phone. Just make a swishing sound so I know that you're... Getting there. Okay. Uh, Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 21. This is the Apostle Paul, and he writes, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Pause for a second. Who's the they that Paul is talking about? Well, honestly, it's you. It's me. It's every single human being. This is This is a a pronouncement that Paul is making about the state of the world, people. God has written it on our hearts who he is, and yet we turn from that anyway. So, for although they knew God, you and I, us and every person, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul has given us some incredible insight to the human condition here. And I say again, mankind is not mostly good and just in need of a little bit of help. We are fools, and yet we think we are wise. We know the truth about God because he's written it on our hearts is what Scripture tells us, but instead we actively choose to worship idols. We exchange the immortal glory of God for images that look like us. And man has made the most grievous error possible, consciously denying God and placing himself on the throne of glory, worshiping the creatures that God has made rather than serving the good and gracious God who made them. And here's Paul's big red sign. Wrong way. Do not enter. And yet Paul... This isn't new. All he's doing is reiterating to us what we find in Genesis chapter 3. Flip there with with me. This one's easy to find. It's in the first couple pages of your Bible. 
Swish, swish, swish. Genesis chapter 3. Starting in verse 1. This is probably a familiar story, even if you don't have a lot of history at church. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And the serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The answer is yes. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the, tr- of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the tragic moment where you and I became idol worshipers. This is the tragic moment when all of mankind in an effort to become more wise than God had already allowed them to be actually became fools. We bought into Satan's lie that God didn't have to be God I could be God instead. And this was the moment when every human being became cursed by sin in a bold rebellion against the goodness of God, in hard-hearted pride. We threw him down from his rightful throne and took our seat there instead. Or at least we tried, right? Because in truth, it hasn't gone so well, has it? Rather than improving their already perfect situation in the Garden of Eden in the presence of God, This was the moment that ruined everything when death and suffering and sin and tragedy and sadness and heartache entered the world. In this moment, the human heart became desperately sick. The worship that was supposed to go to God alone was turned to other things, idols of all kinds, so that now the default mode of the human heart because of this moment is to trade the truth of God for a lie and worship false gods. From here, we can make our way forward. I won't ask you to turn there to Exodus chapter 20, though, and we find the Ten Commandments. You don't need to go there. I'll I'll just summarize it. What is the very first commandment? Do you know? You shall have no other gods before me. Or as the ESV footnotes it, beside me, right? Let's not confuse this. There... We're not talking about having a God before God. We're talking about having a God even equal on the same plane or even anywhere near God. No other gods before me or beside me. Nothing in our lives should come even close to God's place of prominence in our heart. But don't we see the idol-worshiping nature of mankind in the story of the Ten Commandments just in a spectacular way? I mean, do you know this story? Moses is up on the mountain meeting with God and God is giving him these Ten Commandments, these beautiful divine decrees. And what are the people of Israel doing at the foot of the mountain? Do you remember? 
having just seen the miraculous power of God as he leads his people out of slavery in Egypt with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand, delivering them from Pharaoh by miraculous works, the likes of which no one had ever seen before. Israel gets out to the mountain where they're supposed to go to worship God. And while Moses is up on top talking to God, what are the people of Israel doing? They have got right to work making an idol, a golden calf that they can bow down to as God. And here we see the sheer ridiculousness of man's default state as a worshiper of idols, don't we? We deny the immortal glory of God, the one who made us, the one who has redeemed us from slavery. And instead, we turn our hearts to worship the things that are our own creation. Isaiah 44, I want you to turn to this one. I want you to see this. It mocks this ridiculous behavior. And you need to see this because I think Isaiah is probably a book where not too many people spend too much time reading. Isaiah chapter 44. And again, no shame in using the index. We find some passages in the Bible where the tone is almost sarcasm, almost mockery, actually, which I think is interesting. Chapter 44, Look at starting in verse 13 with me. I'm waiting because I still hear swishing. I love it. All right, Isaiah chapter 44, verse 13, it says, The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me for you are my god. So a carpenter cuts down a tree with half the tree. He chops it up into logs so he can cook himself some dinner. And with the other half, he carves it into an idol and he cries out for it to save him. Do you see the ridiculousness of this? Half of it goes in the fire. Half of it becomes a god. It's actually humorous. It's so ridiculous, isn't it? Except that it's so sad and helplessly lost too. And notice with me, what does he carve the wood into? What image does he make out of it? Verse 13, he shapes it into the figure of a man. And here is the most serious misconduct in all of our idol worship. Satan tells Adam and Eve in the garden, you can be like God. In essence, you can be God. And so at the core, idol worship is really just self-worship. We cast off the mercies of our Creator who loves us, and we bind ourselves up in the shackles of self-worship, self-love, self-admiration, self-concern, self-absorption, and vanity. 
And now for Israel in the Old Testament, they bowed down to actual tiny images of gods that they had carved out of wood. We don't do that so much anymore, right? I mean, the closest thing that we get to that is probably our TV or our smartphone. But just because we don't bow down to carved images that look like ourselves made out of wood, it doesn't mean that we're not idol worshipers at heart, right? I think, I'm going to call what what I would call the big four, and I think the big four are pretty damning. Money, sex, power, and what I call false messiahs. Consider this for a second. To, to know that money is an idol in our culture, you only have to look at the sickening consumerism that surrounds Christmas. Just as one example, an easy one to point out. Christmas, I, and I love Christmas, please understand. I celebrate Christmas in my house. I love it. But Christmas used to be a holiday where we would celebrate the birth of the Son of God. And now it's little more than a pagan holiday celebrating the capitalistic achievement of man. Don't even use the word Christmas because it has Christ in it. And we are idol worshipers giving glory that we steal from God to ourselves. To know that sex is an idol in our culture, you simply have to consider the statistics. Statistically speaking, 70% of men in America and 30% of women in America are addicted to pornography. What God created to be a beautiful expression of love and intimacy within the loving bounds of a marriage covenant, a commitment, has become nothing more than just lecherous self-gratification, worship of the creature instead of the creator. To know that power is an idol in our culture, something that people strive for, all you have to do is observe our broken uh, political system where average, everyday Americans obsess over who is or is not running our country. I mean, I confess someone very close to me was showing me on Facebook somebody else who's very close to me, a family member. And in like one day, there were three different posts about this one single topic. I mean, it's, it's an obsession. Troll Facebook on any given day, and you're going to see that there are people wailing or celebrating the achievements of their little human gods. They're politicians who they put their hope in. Or if it's not that, it's the other extreme. It's them extolling the excellencies of their own narcissism. To see the idolatry of the false Messiah, consider this. You only have to notice how many different ways we've contrived to attempt to save ourselves from feeling miserable in this broken life. An overabundance of drugs or alcoholism, endless entertainment, a plethora of options to keep the human soul from feeling the emotional pain or suffering or emptiness that comes with being broken, a desperate effort to find a false Messiah to save us from ourselves. So are you beginning to see the problem, why this was such a problem in Thyatira? Are you beginning to see why Jesus was so concerned for his church? warning them about idol worship, do not enter, wrong way. Destruction is down this road. And if we understand the story of of, of Israel from the Old Testament, we see this pattern again and again and again. I mean, it, it is almost embarrassing. It's humorous, actually, to some degree. Jezebel was only one evil person from the Old Testament guilty of leading the people of Israel astray into idolatry. This is behavior that is 
repetitive, it's corrupting, and, and it spreads. But there's another thing you need to understand here about why Jesus is concerned about idol worship. Hear me on this. Idols have nothing to give. They don't give anything. That's why God mocks them in Isaiah 44. Here's a guy who chops down a tree and makes a god for himself that looks suspiciously like himself, and then he cries out to it to deliver him, but it can't. Idols never provide anything. They only take. Consider the ones that we've talked about already. Money, sex, power, false messiahs. When it comes to money, we've created this amazing capitalistic machine that I think is actually a wonderful thing. It's produced the most wealth that the world has ever seen, and we should praise God for that. And yet, consider this. The average family is a slave to debt laying their money at the altar of a false god who robs them of their time and their joy so they can have more payments to have more stuff that they don't actually need. When it comes to the idol of sex, if you follow the news at all, it's actually terrifying to see what pornography is doing to people's minds. Rather than watch pornography and be satisfied, this idol demands more and more and more. I mean, there is no satisfaction in this thing. So that porn addicts need more and more of this, more increased doses of more vulgar displays of pornography to get their fix. It's, they've actually done studies that show that it's like a heroin addiction in the brain. When it comes to power, watch anyone climb the corporate ladder. We see it's never enough to satisfy their ambition, isn't it? People give up their children, they give up their time, they give up their families and all kinds of other stuff to sacrifice before this idol of power. And what does it give back? In fact, I, I was thinking about this this week. I, I think idolatry of power is really the leading cause behind the argument for abortion right now. Think about this. A woman should have the right to end the life of her unborn child because that option gives her the power to determine the outcome of her life. That's idol worship. And you really get nothing in return. Or the false messiah, people trusting in their drugs, which is a huge industry to ease their heartache, only to find that drugs rob them of their lives. Or people trusting in their government to save them, only to find that overnight the winds of government change and their false messiah has left them with nothing, right? I mean, consider for a second... How many millions of people, hundreds of millions of people throughout the course of history have sold their souls to worship an idol only to get to the end of their life and find that they're dissatisfied? How many hundreds of millions of people have let a false god take and take and take from them only to find that all of the promises that they've been made are empty? How many hundreds of millions of people through history have bought into the lie that we can be like God. And instead of worshiping Him, we can be worshipped. Revelation 2.21 I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. 
The truth is, guys, you are free to worship whatever God you want, even yourself, like most people do. You can do that if you want. But what we find here is that your actions have consequences. Idols steal life. There is a God, the one true God, who is able to give life, give joy and hope and contentment and so much more. Everything that your heart and your soul was created to crave. And because we are made by God, for God, giving our hearts to worship anything other than Him, in the end is just going to leave us broken and empty, blind and poor and dead. And I love the way that Timothy Keller defines an idol. He's got this book called Counterfeit Gods where he deals with this. I want to read a, a lengthier piece of this, so bear with me. He says, what is an idol? It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children, or career and making money, or achievement and critical acclaim, or saving face and social standing. It can be romantic, a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in the Christian ministry. When your meaning in life is to fix someone else, we may call it codependency, but it's really idolatry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I will feel that my life has meaning. Then I'll know that I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. And there are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. The old pagans were not fanciful when they depicted virtually everything as a god. They had sex gods, work gods, war gods, money gods, nation gods, for the simple fact that anything can be a god that rules and serves as a deity in the heart of a person or in the life of a people. Wow. He nails it, right? And the truth is that Jesus doesn't want to share your heart with an idol. He wants you all to himself because he loves you that much. And just like I would never share my wife with another, Jesus refuses to share the heart of his followers with false gods that he knows are only going to steal and manipulate and deprive. Read the final section of this letter with me, and let me try and tie this all together as we close here and worship in a minute. Oops, i got to flip back there. Swish. Back in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. 
the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I think it's fair for me to summarize these verses in this way. To the one who conquers, I will give the morning star. That is Jesus himself. He is the morning star. And so what does it mean for us to conquer? Verse 26, if you look closely there, you might think that to conquer is to keep his works until the end. Okay, yes, I would say that that's a necessary part. I think it says that. But listen to this. The works have to find their origin in something greater, a greater reality. The works have to be born out of a changed heart. The works themselves are not enough. And what it means for us to conquer and persevere to the end is that we love Jesus, friends. 1 Corinthians 13 helps us understand that the greatest attribute of the Christian has, is this love that reflects the love of God that God has for us. And so loving God is the climax of the Christian life. Okay, but there's another angle that we need to look at this from, okay? Because the truth is, no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we do, it is not us who conquers. It is not me in the end who will conquer. It is not you in the end who will conquer. It is Jesus who is the one who conquers. And so, in truth, the Christian is not a person who comes out on top and ends up victorious. Rather, the Christian is the person who has had their dead and rebellious heart conquered by Christ. He is the one who conquers. And what is it that he has conquered? The human heart. Your heart. If you have placed your faith in him, then he is the conqueror of your rebellious heart. And so there's really little for the human to do other than to submit himself to the conquering grace of God. And so I have to ask you, in opposition to the idol worship that plagues the human heart, has your heart been conquered by Jesus? His love and His grace poured out on the cross. When you think about it, are you enamored by His beauty? Are you obsessed with His glory? Are you consumed by His grace? Are you infatuated with His love? Are you smitten by His Holy Spirit? Because that's what it really means to be a Christian. It's not merely that we just avoid going the wrong way, do not enter, and so I just don't go there. That's not it. It's not only that we're careful not to enter the paths that lead to destruction. It's not merely that we go to church and we avoid idol worship. At the core, understand, Christians are not merely good people, moral people, or decent folks. At the core, a Christian is a person who has had their heart completely conquered by Jesus. And the truth is, when I look around at contemporary American Christianity, and maybe I need to be more honest and say at Christianity through history, what I really see is a lot of people who have taken up Jesus as just one more little deity to add to their shelf of idols. One more little God to add to their idol collection. And we're in danger of becoming like the church in Thyatira or the church in Pergamum 
when in fact we should be a people whose hearts have been fully subdued by Jesus so that we love him with a single-minded passion and we love nothing else. He alone is God. He alone is good. He's the morning star, the object for which the human heart was made. He's the only thing that satisfies. And he has conquered all rebel hearts. He has subdued us who were unfaithful. He has lavished his love upon us so that we might be free to love him back. Let me pray for us to that end. Lord, we thank you for your word, the way that it posts these warning signs. Do not enter wrong way. And I pray that you would help us to be people who don't go down this path of idolatry. Lord, may we never be a people who have simply taken Jesus and added a little image of him to our shelf of idols. One more thing to bow down to in this plethora of gods that we worship. Lord, I pray that it would never be for Maricopa Springs that we would turn our backs to the idols of this culture and we would worship Christ alone. That we would be a people who are faithful to his name. That we would be conquerors because we trust in him who has conquered our hearts. And Lord, I ask that we would learn this more through you satisfying our hearts. God, I pray that we would be drawn to obey you and love you and seek you, not, not out of guilt or fear or shame, but because we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Father, would you allow us to know Christ in that way? Amen.